This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. I'm here at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney with producer Joe Koning. The galleries here are brimming with art that uses technology to tell stories of the modern age. There are old black and white films blasted onto walls in a scene that slides seamlessly from sculptures to the surrounding chaos. There's a large ticking clock hanging in the middle of the gallery, its numbers backlit with an eerie yellow light that casts shadows over a pile of rubble. Traditionally, you might think of technology and art as opposing each other. You might think that art is creative, dealing with the abstract and driven by expression. Whereas technology is scientific, cold, driven by tools, machines and computers. But in the digital age, artists and creators are making things that bridge this divide. And maybe when you really start to peel back the layers, what we find is that technology and creativity have always been intertwined. In this episode, we'll be exploring some of the spaces where these two fields converge. We're going to tell just a few of the stories of art from the digital age. But we're at the MCA to do more than just stare at the walls. We're here to meet with a curator. Um, yeah, my name's Peter Johnson, um, and I work at the Museum of Contemporary Art as an assistant curator, and I'm also a volunteer director at First Draft. But first, a bit of background. See, a few years ago, an artist called Matthew Plummer Fernandez created an automated Tumblr account that uses deep learning algorithms to look at works of abstract art, interpret it as text, and then post a couple of sentences about what it sees. The account's called Novice Art Blogger, and we decided to show Peter, an actual human, a few posts from the account and see what he thought. What's, what's your favourite response so far on the page? I really like um, the Mallard William Turner one where he thinks it looks like Einstein's hair. Yeah, there's, there's um, one self-portrait as a drowning man by Dieter Roth from 74. This painting by Dieter Roth is pretty hard to describe. It's a mixture of acrylic and watercolour on cardboard. It's got swashes of blues and browns with some gold. And yeah, it's one of those paintings that where what I see is going to be different to what you see. It's kind of like an inkblot test. Maybe what you see says more about you than it does the actual painting. Yeah, and on some level maybe it is an abstract portrait of the artist as a drowning man. Anyway, here's Peter, reading aloud how novice art blogger interpreted the piece. A large sculpture hangs on the ground with a spray painted on walls, or imagine there is a pile of metal sculpture with several birds on it. I once observed two birds haying sex on top of a roof covered in tile. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever looked at self-portrait as a drowning man and thought anything <laughs> similar to that? Um, no, and I guess there's, there's actually something really novel and interesting in that sort of off-the-wall interpretation, right? It gives you another pathway in. Maybe it is a large sculpture hanging on the ground with birds, you know? Probably not. Um, but having said that, there are other posts on the blog where um, it provides, you know, it provides an interpretation or you know, a reading of what the image is that is actually really interesting or useful. And you're like, oh, goodness, that is a, a person in a storm. I didn't see that before. While sometimes the posts are somewhat intelligible and even absurdly insightful, other times they are just as abstract as the paintings they are interpreting. So it's by no means perfect, and it's certainly not close to making any art critics redundant. All this algorithm can do, right, is it's image recognition software. It's, it can only try and make sense of what's in the image, and so the more distorted or abstract the image is, the, the, the more it sort of flounders. Um, 
And so it's missing the sort of, you know, the historical context, but also the ability to um, provide reasons for art appreciation. And so, I mean, often that becomes, in art, in art criticism, that becomes ideology. So you... Um, you know, you look at the sort of the classic example is Clement Greenberg, who championed uh, Pollock and the abstract expressionists because he, you know, he thought that was the highest form of painting, and so it becomes an argument about the value of particular types of art as much as anything else, which um, is perhaps not in this deep learning algorithms remit. For Peter, as a curator, this lack of historical context is a pretty big deal. You know, I came up through a, a postmodern education. For me, a context is incredibly important. Um, you can obviously um, have a you know a one-to-one relationship with an art object, or and just have that experience of its aesthetics. But um, for me, the most fulsome understanding, the most um, interesting way of engaging with that is understanding who the artist was, um, sort of their markers of their identity, where they grew up, what age or time they came from. So the context behind art and the artist is really important. And that's understandable. It plays a huge role in art appreciation. But Matthew Plummer Fernandez, the creator of Novice Art Blogger, thinks that stripping away this context can also be useful in its own right. In fact, he is quoted as saying, I think there is a value in having a machine describing art without the burden of prior art knowledge, art history, trends and favouritism. It makes us reflect on whether art should be able to stand on its own and elicit unaffected experiences of art or whether to read art we need that cultural context and formative background, or a mix of both. So while curators like Peter aren't afraid of losing their job anytime soon, the novice art blogger is a form of technology interpreting art, and in doing so, it's making something worth talking about of its own accord. And it's not the only way technology is changing the artistic landscape. Well, it's creating a a whole set of peculiar situations. This is Tom Lee from the School of Design at the University of Technology, Sydney. People talk about it as being typically unstable and less and less is a given. Tom studies one of these peculiar situations, looking at how 3D printing is challenging our ideas about handcraft. Depending on what other technologies it converges with, you know, networked culture and virtual reality, all these other things come together, it might produce something that we can't even predict. When you think of a craftsman, you get this image in your head of someone working alone in a studio, using their hands to chip away at marble or sanding down a piece of wood. Yeah, and when you factor in a 3D printer whirring away in the studio, you think it would ruin this scene. It's cheating, right? Well, according to Tom... 3D printing or additive manufacturing is having a very different effect. At an aesthetic level, you can create forms that are more complex. You might create something with your hands out of wood and then you might, say, hypothetically scan that in so it exists as a 3D image. You might then print that and then you've got a a prototype for something you might then rebuild with your hands and then maybe you can scan that and so it might exist in a virtual environment as well. The machines aren't taking over the design. It's more like it's entering into a conversation between the artist and their tools. This feedback loop between man and machine is a whole new area called the digital handmade. And that's not an oxymoron. Because when you think about it, humans have always used technology to craft objects. Even though you might say that craft is something that you do with your hands, it might be 
your hands with a hammer in it. The human and the technological can't be understood adequately in separation from each other. And even though these technologies like additive manufacturing have opened up a whole range of new potentials at the same time, it is about the human and the technological still. The digital handmade is producing everything from art installations to fashion. And in a society where nearly everything around us is mass produced on a factory line, 3D printing and the digital handmade is a step away from this. Mass production since the Industrial Revolution has led to things being created that are multiple and generic. So there's a longer history of that. You know, we already have so many repeats of things that exist in households all across the country. So instead of everyone having the same toothbrush or the same couch or the same generic piece of art on their walls, the 3D printer gives us the potential for mass customization. I would argue that 3D printing in itself allows more customizable things. Everything is so dynamic at a social level that new technologies are always being reappropriated. And I guess that's where the artfulness lies in the way that a new technology, whether it's AI or 3D printing, is, is then reappropriated to create something. And therein lies the art. What's so exciting about this is that it's functional as well as artistic. So say I had back problems, and to fix this, I wanted a workbench that matched my height exactly. I could share what I wanted with a designer who could digitally craft that object for me, and then I could print it out on a 3D printer. And voila, no more back problems. And maybe if people had more control over the objects they use, they'd be less likely to treat them as disposable. It's a win-win. It's easy to assume that when we take the human element out of art production that we lose some of the creativity, but that's clearly not the case. I love the idea of art in the digital age creating peculiar situations because it never ends up quite how you expect it to. So, so far, we've looked at how both artificial intelligence and 3D printing are challenging current art trends. But technology is also opening up entirely new opportunities that change the way we understand the world around us. After the break, we're going to meet someone who's opened up a new field altogether in an extremely cool way. We'll see what happens when art and technology meet science. Think Digital Futures. Before the break, we promised to show you some of the new opportunities technology has opened up for art in the digital age. New fields that change our ideas not just about what art is, but our ideas about the whole world around us. Well, you're currently listening to it. Or to be a little bit more specific, what you're listening to are the strands of a double helix of DNA tearing apart like a zipper being pulled open and closed. It's the work of a guy called Drew Berry. Um, Biomedical animator. 
So I work at the blend of science and art. I'm focused on the discoveries that are being made about how our cells work based in within a medical research institute. I am a science artist, so I'm converting, translating visually the raw science we know into a visual story. As a disclaimer, our actual DNA strains don't really sound that ambient. It's an interpretation by Drew. He creates visual and audio representations of the microscopic cells that make up the human body. Drew realised that there was a potential to draw together science, art and technology to create something that nobody else had done. I started as a cell biologist but got disillusioned with being in the lab bench and trying to get grants. Worked in marketing and advertising for a couple of years and then ended up being a Photoshop guy in a medical research institute. Since I was about 14, I've a, I was the first generation who grew up with a computer. Yeah, that's why I've always been doing animations as a, as a fun, as a hobby, which then evolved into animation. If you watch the videos, which I recommend you have a look for on YouTube, you see molecular worlds unfolding in front of your eyes. Drew really stands at the crossroads. On the one hand, he's an artist, but on the other, all his animations are scientifically accurate. All of my animations are founded and from real scientific data, and it's many, many forms of data that I weave together to create a visualization. The scientific literature is filled with incredible stories, mind-boggling stories about what we've discovered, but it's buried in the, in the scientific language and jargon. I'm able to read the literature and interpret that, but also access all the published data, and then from that I'm building models to, to represent and to, to reveal what we're discovering. These cells and processes are so small we can't see them. You can't take a photo of these things. Not even microscopes can see them. We're talking molecules smaller than a wavelength of visible light. What Drew is doing is translating data into visual narratives that help us understand things like how a cancer cell invades the body. So with something like a cancer, we know that it forms when cells mutate. It's a different thing altogether to be able to watch the cell mutate on the screen before you. And something like this is only possible when you've got some pretty sweet gear. But we do have techniques for what, what like for example, what they call X-ray crystallography. So it's like if you had a, a chandelier hanging in the next room and you couldn't see the chandelier, but you're able to shine a light in that room and the light then reflects off the chandelier on the walls. And you can see the spots on the wall, but you can't see the chandelier. But from the spots on the wall, you can calculate the shape of the chandelier. And that's exactly what we're doing with molecules. We can't see them, but we can scatter stuff off of them and then work out what shape they are. Creativity comes into it when Drew makes choices about how he wants to translate what is essentially raw data. The colours, the music and the design are not by accident. They're completely an aesthetic, a choice to evoke a feeling. So a lot of my stories that I'm telling are diseases, for example, cancer or diabetes or um, malaria, how the malaria parasite invades your cells. So I use colour and sound to evoke a feeling, a feeling of dread if you're face-to-face -face with a cancer, or uh, repulsion if you can see a parasite invading a cell. There is no doubt that a lot of work goes into these animations. But Joe, is it really art? Well, I'm no art expert, but yeah, it is. It's art the same way that, say, a video game uses animation to create these visual landscapes and tell stories. And actually, video games are a huge inspiration for Drew. I'm always gaming. You know, I'm okay. My son's a lot better. He's 10 years old and whipping my ass now. But it's also a very different way of telling a narrative. It's more about, I'm so fascinated by the visual tricks and effects they're bringing to bear, but also the sorts of stories they're telling and how they tell them. It's, it's an area that has a lot of exploration to be done and for us to try out different things. We talked a bit before about how 3D printing is allowing us to move from mass production to mass customization how it might have been before the Industrial Revolution. Fields like biomedical animation are changing our ideas of the role of art in our society. Traditionally, you think of science and art as on opposite sides of the fence, or at least that's how it's taught in schools and at university. 
This kind of thinking dates back to the Enlightenment, a period in history that saw a huge flourishing of reason in Europe, and it's the basis of science as we know it, as well as other fields like philosophy. There's a great example of this in a book called Encyclopédie, written by Jean-Laurent d'Alembert and Denis Diderot, published in Paris in the 1750s. It's one of the first modern encyclopedias, an attempt to gather up all human knowledge into a series of volumes. The sum of these contributions basically represent Enlightenment thinking. In it, there's a diagram. It's called The Tree of d'Alembert and Diderot. Except I'm looking at this now and it doesn't really look like a tree. It's a chart. It's got three columns, memory, reason and imagination. This, according to d'Alembert and Diderot, was human knowledge. The chart for memory, or history, and reason, or philosophy, stretch all the way down the page, sprawled with examples of human intellect. But the section for imagination, or poetry, is short. Just a few lines on narrative, drama and parables. Already we can see this separation. The work of reason, philosophy and science is removed from creativity. But was this ever really how things should have been divided, with creativity and inspiration on one side, and science and logic on the other? Even though people like Drew Berry may be pioneers in their field in the 21st century, the idea of using art to represent science never wasn't a thing. The tradition of my kind of work goes back to medical illustrators who would be trained in anatomy and they would go in, in surgery and they would lean over the shoulder of the surgeon who would be operating on a knee. And if they took a photograph of that knee, it'd be blood and gore and it'd be hard to understand what's going on. Where if you have an illustrator, a human artist who can interpret what's going on, they can then reveal the technique the surgeon is using for another surgeon. So that, that, that's been going on for centuries. Like with 3D printing bringing us closer to our historical ideas about handcrafting, artists like Drew are bringing us back to the origins of science and art. They work together all along. If d'Alembert and Diderot's tree actually looked like a tree, you might have seen that the branches of knowledge are connected. Even the most famous Enlightenment scientists use illustrations to express knowledge in creative ways. Take another famous tree, Charles Darwin's Tree of Life, the one that links all living things and connects the dots between them. Or you can go even further back during the Renaissance, where you had Leonardo da Vinci, who went seamlessly between being a scientist, an inventor, and one of the greatest artists of all time. And as a society, we're only just starting to re-remember that. It's inherently human to use illustration to... Uh, on a napkin with a pencil, to, to think through an idea, but also to convey it to somebody else. If you can sketch it out, it's a very powerful way to convey what you're thinking. That's really nothing new. It's a wild frontier right now because over the last 10, 15 years, uh, gaming technology and graphics technology has just completely changed. What's po and now it's all possible. It's, it's not about the technology anymore. It's about the idea. So that in itself is exciting. But also in the same, the technology has transformed science and we are going through a really rapid revolution right now of what we're understanding of how, how things work. That in itself is a great motivator for doing this kind of work. So we could have said during the Industrial Revolution that creativity and technology didn't belong together. But now, in the midst of amazing innovations in science and tech, how can we now describe this relationship? Yeah, in fact, Tom thinks we should describe it as a network. I think the fact that it seems like a contrast or seems like an abnormal way to describe something is perhaps indicates a, a slight gulf in understanding between the people who are involved in that culture of making and appreciation and the people who sit outside it because it's, it's not at all oxymoronic if you're a designer today. I guess people are worried about things like technology and artificial intelligence taking over things that people see as uniquely human. But technology and artificial intelligence isn't pushing humanity out of creativity. If anything, it's the opposite. We're embracing new ways to design and to produce objects and to tell stories. 
And these situations where art and technology converge are producing some incredible works that are helping us to see the world in ways we didn't even think possible before. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. If you want to check out some more of the Novice Art Blogger or see some of Drew Berry's animations, which you should definitely do, head to our website at 2scr.com slash shows slash think hyphen digital hyphen futures. Thanks to producer Joe Koning for help with this episode. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and rate and review us on iTunes. I'm Shane Anderson. Bye for now.